Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Windham? I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening, and it's a rare thing these days. Listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen, God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. <laughs> and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says, but we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people, and you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving, loving. That God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 90 years, uh, 92 years old, about the importance of stories. I am Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Radio, coming to you live from WSCA's West End Studio, 909 Islington Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. True Tales Radio is a place for local people to share their true stories with our listeners and audience and to come be a part of this local independent community radio station here in the seacoast of New Hampshire. Tonight, we have six storytellers on the theme of summer camps and camping. First, I want to tell you that last month, you may not have heard, True Tales Radio was named the best storytelling program in New Hampshire for 2016 <laughs> by New Hampshire Magazine. We are very honored and happy about that. Um, we also want to welcome the crew from and the viewers of Portsmouth Public Media Television. Thanks so much for being here to tape so that people can watch True Tales TV Tuesdays and Thursdays, 8 p.m. on Channel 98 or streaming at ppmtvnh.org slash live. Our underwriters for tonight's program, Jan Hansen, who believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station in the Seacoast, Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups on True Tales Radio, and who is curious to know, hey, What's your story? And Emily Spaulding, author of Red Clay Girl, who believes that when you share your story, you never know who you might touch. 
So the way tonight's show will go is that each of our storytellers will be introduced to you by our MC Pat Spaulding. They'll come on up and share a true story from their lives. They have 10 minutes to do so. And there is no rating system and no voting, no grading or judgment. It's not about that. We're here to share our stories and connect with folks. So tonight, again, we have six storytellers. And our storytellers are going to be Sarah Elizabeth Earle, Carol Walrzak, Seth Walrzak, the Walrzak clan, <laughs> Annette Slatterly, John Dover, and Kathy Wolf. I now pass the mic on to MC Pat Spaulding to introduce each storyteller to you. Here's Pat. Thanks, Amy. Heidi ho, we sound like a mighty audience. <laughs> and we have some mighty tellers today with some, uh, some good tales about the summer and camping. We're going to start off with Sarah Elizabeth Earle. She is a lecturer in English as a Second Language at the University of New Hampshire, where she also completed her MFA in creative writing. You can find her writing in Bayou Magazine and forthcoming in the Carolina Quarterly. Sarah loves to travel. She has hiked the Alps, biked through the Balkans, and surfed the Dominican Republic. Tonight's story, Boys and Bears, may give us a little insight into the formative years of her adventurous spirit. <laughs> Come on up, Sarah. Hi. Um, so it's the summer of 2004, and my friend Joanna and I decide that we're going to hitchhike uh, all the way across Canada. We're 24, um, ready for adventure, but we're broke. So we decide we're going to leave our uh, Montreal apartments, where um, we live for college, university, and travel over 3,000 miles to Vancouver Island and then back um, by the power of our thumbs. Uh, as you might not be surprised, my father does not think this is a very good idea. I'm only one of two daughters, and on the phone he pleads with me not to do this. He paints all kinds of pictures of violence and maiming and my certain death. Um, uh, Joanna's mom, on the other hand, is a lot less concerned. On the phone she's like, oh, have fun. <laughs> Um, so here's the thing that you need to know. Joanna's from France, and in France, hitchhiking is pretty common. Um, so she's not really that afraid of hitchhiking or, or people, but she is really freaked out by the idea of bears. Um, and I'm from rural New Hampshire. I've seen plenty of bears, not that worried about them. But Americans don't really hitchhike, um, and so I'm pretty freaked out by these strange people um, in their cars. So naturally, we make a great pair. <laughs> so we, we set off, and somewhere in northern Quebec, I meet my first challenge. Um, we jump into a shining blue 18-wheeler, which is towing a military tank, and find Steve behind the wheel. Um, he's this, Steve's this really little guy about our age, and he's got a sort of nasally Quebecois accent and these little delicate wrists. Um, <laughs> and he's, he's really excited. He's so delighted to have stumbled upon us because now he has two girls in his cab that he can try to impress. And he begins right away with the bragging. 
Um, and he's like, sometimes my girlfriend comes and we make love in the in the driver's seat while I'm driving, and he's sort of thrusting his hips in illustration. Or I've had four women at the same time. Um, and we don't really believe any of this. We're rolling our eyes at each other, and we also know just by looking at each other that we could take this guy down in seconds if he tried anything. <laughs> Um, but Steve kind of calms down, and he starts actually being funny and telling funny stories. And by the end of the uh, day, we're at the truck stop where he's convinced the guy behind the counter that we're his sisters, so we can take free showers at the truck stop. Um, but then it's time to sleep. Um, and Steve very generously offers for one of us to share his bed. Um, and as he's saying this, I look down and Joanna is putting her camping mattress on the one little inch of floor that's left in the cab. And I'm trying to catch her eye because she's just thrown me under the bus. She thinks that I should sleep in Steve's bed. Um, and meanwhile, Steve has stripped off all his clothes down to his little white underpants <laughs> and jumped into the bed. Um, so I consider my options. Um, I could make a fuss. I could force Joanna to change places with me. I could go sleep in the driver's seat. Um, but I'm tired, and I look down at this little guy. I'm not so intimidated by him, and it's kind of a little hilarious that he still wears tidy whities <laughs> So I keep all my clothes on, my sweater, and my socks, all my clothes, and I sort of gingerly get into bed with Steve. Um, and Steve's pretending to be asleep. I know he's not because it's only been a couple of minutes, but he's tossing and turning. And in this tossing, he throws one of his arms over me. Um, and I sort of lie there, frozen. And at this point, I kind of start to worry. I sort of wonder, you know, is this what my dad was warning me about? Is hitchhiking really a bad idea? Am I going to have to start kicking and scratching? Um, but I don't, so I don't move. I just lie there. Steve doesn't move. We lie like that for long, uncomfortable seconds. <laughs> and here's the thing. Nothing happens. Steve gets the hint, and he rolls away and falls asleep. And I'm like, hallelujah, but also kind of like, see, Dad? No maiming here. <laughs> no maiming. A few days later, Joanna gets her challenge because we start camping. Um, by this time, we're in Ontario, and we find this deserted field full of waist-high grass. And it's really beautiful. The sun is setting, and the birds are calling, and it's quiet and peaceful. And we're putting up our tent, and suddenly Joanna says, oh, what was that noise? And, she, and I pause, and I try to listen. I don't hear anything. And, and so we continue putting up the tent, and then she says, no, I heard it again. And this time, I do hear something. And it, sounds, it could be the sound of a faraway truck breaking down a hill, or it could be a closer, more scary sound of a growl. Um, so I say, get into the tent. So we jump into the tent, and we're sitting really still, listening. And we hear the grass sort of snap and crackle as if a big, furry body is walking through it. Um, 
And poor Joanna, her whole body is trembling. She's so scared. And um, I'm the one who's supposed to be, you know, more confident around wild animals. So I take her hand, and I'm like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. Um, And inwardly, I sort of start this series of very impractical prayers, like, oh, God, if if we get out of this, I promise to become a vegetarian. (laughs) I promise to donate to bear awareness training. (laughs) Um, But I'm telling Joanna it's going to be fine. But the more we listen... The more I hear snouts and bellies and paws, and it more sounds like more than one bear, two or three bears walking around our tent. And so we're sitting there holding hands, frozen, terrified, and we sit there for what feels like hours until suddenly I wake up and I've fallen asleep. My arm hurts, my back hurts, but I'm alive. (laughs) And Joanna wakes up. Uh, and we we poke our heads out of the tent, and we look around, and we think that we can see some of the grass where it's been sort of depressed by these bears, but we don't really stick around long enough to check it out. We pack up, and we get out of there really quick. Um, so a lot of things happen on that trip, um, but when I get back to Montreal, I start to think about it, and I wonder, were there really bears, or was that just our imagination and a really strong breeze in August. And I wonder, you know, did I even need to be afraid of Steve at all, who was really just an opportunist at best? (laughs) And I wonder, what is fear, really, besides an active mind envisioning the worst? Um, At any rate, we successfully crossed and recrossed Canada over 6,000 miles and nothing terrible happened to us. I'm pretty glad I didn't listen to my dad. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Sarah. You know, Canada has a train that actually crosses. (laughs) I've been on that train before. You were more adventurous than I was. Next up, we have Carol Walrzak. Um, She is an interfaith minister who was committed to the transformation of self and our planet Earth through education, ordination, support, celebration, and service. She conducts sacred ceremonies such as weddings, memorial services, funerals, and other rituals in the Seacoast area and northeastern Massachusetts. For over 30 years, Carol and her husband owned and operated a 200-site recreational campground called the Exeter Elms Family Campground. This true story, which dates back to 1988, will be told in two parts from two separate points of view. First, Carol's, the mother, and then Seth, her son, will give us his take on what transpired that day. But let's begin with part one of Carol's version of The Sting. (laughs) Our 
Hancock family owned and managed the Exeter Elms Campground for over 30 years and provided a wonderful camping experience for thousands of people. We were open from May 1st to October 1st and uh, located 10 miles from Hampton Beach, an hour from Boston, and an hour from Portland. Situated on the Exeter River, we actually had 205 sites. The camping experience included fishing, kayaking, and recreation opportunities. We had a store, game room, pavilion, pool. We met people from all over the world, but most of our clientele, our campers, came from New England and Canada. We had such notable campers as the Moonies, real honest-to-goodness gypsies with hobbled chickens, <laughs> Seabrook power plant protesters and workers, politicians, soap opera stars, Reverend Pat Robertson, and a New York fashion model who camped in leotards and spike heels. <laughs> we catered to people from all walks of life, even the homeless. This evening, I'll tell one story which took place at our campground, as Pat said, in 1988. Over the duration of seven hours, one story out of 30 years of campground stories. I call it the sting. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, July 5th, 1988, a busy 4th of July weekend. We expect close to 1,000 campers. All our sites are reserved for the four-day weekend. The weather is perfect. The Exeter River is pristine for canoes and kayaks. The pool is crystal clear for swimming. The store is stocked with everything from marshmallows to firewood. The game room is up and running. And our rec director is planning a variety of games and tournaments. Now, I'm in the campground office where I always was for over 30 years, working with the public. And I was registering campers when Lieutenant Raymond of the Exeter Police Department called. He had an emergency request. Would I go through our reservation system and look up a Massachusetts license plate? It was a black Plymouth Voyager van. I remember the plates, 77Z7677. So I grabbed the reservation box. I head to the back office because this was in the days when we didn't have a computer system. And I was not a happy camper that I had to go through 200 sites by hand. I had momentarily forgotten that my mother was visiting for the weekend, and she was up at our house about an eighth of a mile away, and she was waiting um, for lobster dinner, which we were going to have at 6 o'clock. So I gave her a call, and her southern drawl echoed softly over the phone. Caroline, is there anything I can do to help you with the lobster dinner? And I say, no, Mom, everything's all set. Don't worry. We'll see you later. So I continue looking for the mass plate, muttering to myself that police business better not ruin a delicious lobster dinner. The campground is divided into circles, named after trees. And lo and behold, as I'm searching the oak circle, I see the license plate number. I call the lieutenant, and I tell him the black van is registered to a Roger Bingham. Two adults, two kids, a dog, a 30-foot motorhome, and a visitor by the name of Leroy Smith, 
I know he's driving a Chevy truck. Fifteen minutes later, it didn't take long, Lieutenant and Chief arrive at the campground office along with three Exeter police cars and two New Hampshire State Troopers. Their sensational entrance leads to a chain of events during the next few hours that leave a lasting impression on our family, our staff, and our campers. The chief explains why he's looking for this black van. Two armed men held up a Rite Aid pharmacy in Amesbury, Massachusetts. They stole drugs and cash. Unsuspecting to them, the owner of the Rite Aid was hiding in a closet, and he decided to tail them. He followed their black van as far as the Exeter town line, and he drove directly to the police station with the number, the license plate number of the van. Roger Bingham and Leroy Smith are suspects in a robbery considered armed and dangerous, and they're camping at our campground on the busiest weekend of the year. <laughs> My husband, Rick, shaking his head in amazement, breaks the silence after we get this news. He admits he doesn't know Smith, but Bingham is an exemplary camper. He plays with his own kids. He plays with the other kids. He does recreation. He pays all of his bills. He registers his visitors. He follows all the rules and the regulations. Go figure. He questions if the police are positive that Bingham is their man. We learn that he has a record, and Leroy Smith is probably an alias. We are concerned about all the police cruisers in our parking lot, as curious campers are beginning to ask what's going on, and we are concerned about their safety. The chief explains his plan to arrest the two suspects. After determining they are not at their camp's site, he explains the sting. Unmarked police cars will be stationed on Route 150 in Kensington, Routes 108 north and south in Exeter, one next to the office, unmarked car next to the store, and another unmarked car right near where he's camping. You have to remember it's 1988 and there are no cell phones. The campground is a half a mile from the office. So he, the chief, mandates that the sting not be discussed on campground walkie-talkies. Yet the police are discussing the suspects on their own frequencies, and every seasonal camper with a police scanner hears bits and pieces of information <laughs> that is misconstrued, misinterpreted, and passed on to other seasonal campers. When the police mention black van, the seasonal campers hear black man <laughs> and assume that the suspect is an African-American man camping with his family. We meet with staff and give descriptions of Bingham and Smith with instructions that if either suspect is spotted, the staff is to radio the office with the code word ice cream, used in a meaningful sentence. <laughs> My job is to monitor walkie-talkie dispatches for ice cream messages and physically run to the unmarked police car and relay any information. My husband's job is to stay inside the campground and supervise the staff. 
Now, we, I told you the campground was a half a mile, and, but there were no landlines down there at the time. The chief's last warning to me is, if you hear shooting, Carol, hit the deck. <laughs> so, Seth, who's working alone in the store, insists to this day that we put his life on the line when he was only 13. <laughs> I can honestly say that I remember suffering high anxiety because it was all I could do to cope with the busy weekend, let alone a police sting. I was not in touch with my feelings as to how the sting would unfold or how it might affect our 13-year-old son. It's now 6 p.m. Wasn't I supposed to be home boiling lobster? <laughs> Campers are going about their daily business without knowledge of the sting. My stomach is churning with angst. It's early evening. Most of the campers have registered. The office is quiet. The unmarked police car is right outside my door when that office door opens. And in walks Roger Bingham in the flesh. <laughs> Big, burly, blonde, blue-eyed Roger Bingham. <laughs> I am beyond surprised. Talking to his buddy, he doesn't notice the shocked look on my face. Inside, I'm shaking and quaking and wondering why the policeman in the parking lot didn't recognize him. His buddy is driving a different car, and the black van isn't in sight. Bingham is registering and paying for another guest with another $50 bill. Their car drives off, and I sprint out to the cruiser yelling, there goes your man, that's Roger Bingham. He's in his friend's car. The officer radios his cronies and disappears in pursuit down the campground road. I return to the office feeling quite alone and frightened. Bingham is arrested and quietly handcuffed in front of his wife and his two children by five police officers. Unfortunately, men Women and children, mostly French Canadians, witnessed this arrest. Leroy Smith, who hitched a ride in a green VW bug, arrives on the scene just as Bingham is being arrested. He's wearing a Joe Camel t-shirt. He runs from the scene and he's spotted, not by the police, but by Jack, one of our seasonal campers, who also works campground security. After tackling Smith, Jack radios the office and says, the ice cream man has landed. <laughs> Fortunately, Smith isn't armed, and the police arrest him without incident. At 9 that night, my husband calls a campground meeting in the pavilion to dispel rumors and tell the true story of the sting. He claims it is the best attended meeting in the history of the Exeter Elms Campground. <laughs> As he speaks in English, a volunteer interprets in French for the folks from Quebec. He apologizes to an unknown man who was taking a shower when the police ordered him at gunpoint to come out with his hands up. <laughs> After the meeting, security alerts the office to report that Bingham's wife and friend are searching with flashlights in the woods on the access road to the campground. I call the police and they investigate 
but no guns, cash, or drugs are found. At 11 p.m., our family sits down to a long-awaited lobster dinner. <laughs> the time is 7 p.m. You are listening to WSCALP 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio in New Hampshire. I'm Amy Antonucci, and here's Pat Spaulding to introduce our next storyteller. Yes, indeedy. Our next storyteller is related to our first storyteller, our son, Seth Walrzak. He serves at the Unity on the River Church in Amesbury, Massachusetts, as the Director of Sacred Service Ministry. When not serving the Lord, he works for the devil. As, <laughs> as an attorney at law specializing in business creation and licensing contracts. <laughs> While growing up in the campground featured in this story, Seth encountered gypsies, Mooney cultists, televangelist Pat Buchanan, the FBI on multiple occasions, and an unhealthy amount of maple leaf speedos. <laughs> <laughs> Seth thanks his mother for giving him life and agreeing to co-tell this story. He also blames her for a storybook childhood, one right out of the DSM-5 manual. It has something to do with mental health, for those of you who are unaware. <laughs> and now, part two of The Sting. Come on up. Thank you, Mom. That's a, a good start with the facts, and I accept your apology. <laughs> kind of. Um, I think I can add some flavor to this story, because growing up in a campground was like living in a carnival without rides or cotton candy. <laughs> Just weirdos. And the campground was conveniently situated in Exeter, New Hampshire, near Hampton Beach, along the French-Canadian Riviera. <laughs> and, you know, Exeter's kind of a, a priggish town. It's known for a few famous things, like Phillips Exeter Academy is one, or its local pastime of silent, silently judging each other. <laughs> and it's also known for its sense of exaggerated historical self-importance. I think this is best illustrated by the fact that they celebrate the 4th of July two weeks late every summer. And I hear this is because Exeter didn't hear about independence until two weeks later. And in fact, Exeter is usually late in a lot of things. But I kind of picture Exeter like a Norman Rockwell painting. You know those paintings from the 50s where all these white people are doing really white things? like playing croquet or collecting stamps or like taking a nap by the fishing hole. Well, the campground was like this festering little crack in the portrait. It was Exeter's hidden trailer park. And it was like this alleyway to the other side of the portrait where People cussed and they fought and they still went fishing, but they would fall into the river because they were so drunk. <laughs> and so 
Back to the story. On the day in question, I was all of 13 years old, and I was really awkward looking, and I was really tall and thin. I was about almost six feet tall at that time. And um, I had started growing my hair out because my brother was super cool and he had long hair. He had like suddenly went from a metal head to a hippie. And because he went to prep school, I didn't notice until he came back and he had long hair. So I had cut off my mullet and had to start over again. <laughs> I was growing out my hair to become a hippie, which meant I could no longer talk about like who would win in a fight between like Van Halen or Aerosmith. Because that's what I would do at that age, at 13 years old. Me and the other metalheads had no idea of the irony of thinking that these were masculine men. Anyways, I, had, I always rooted for Def Leppard because they had this one-armed drummer, and I, I'm a sucker for the underdog, so I always kind of argued for them. But I can no longer do that. So while walking to the office on this really hot 4th of July weekend day, I look over at the cabin where my brother and his three hippie friends were, were living. There were three official hippie roommates, but there was actually maybe about a dozen extras at any given time. Um, and I looked over there just to see what they were doing because they had recently started this trend of just wearing like a, a wall tapestry for clothing. <laughs> and they had also stopped wearing deodorant at the same time. And so I was just seeing if they were doing that because that would be the first thing all these campers would see on their way into the campground, all these hippies in skirts. <laughs> Anyways, I... I zigzag through the, the Tetris-like parking game of all the big rigs and the pop-up trailers and the cars and the motorcycles. And I go into the office and it's packed. And so I kind of use my beanpole frame and I edge my way around to the back room where I see my mother in her multitasking glory with a walkie-talkie in one hand and files in the other hand and a mobile phone under her neck. And she's somehow still drinking coffee. <laughs> And so she looks at me, nods, and she juggles everything, puts everything down. She's like, Seth, oh, good. We have a situation. Now, this is something I've literally heard hundreds of times. <laughs> Seth, there are armed criminals in the campground. They have robbed a drugstore. Um, the police have a, perhaps a dozen police officers, some of which are pretending to be campers, and they're going to catch him. Your job is to, and at this point, my brain, my brain just froze. All 13 years of experience did nothing. I just gaped at my mother. Now, the thing about my mother is she's kind of an amazing woman. I mean, she's very sweet, and she's very calm, but she also has, like, the tactical mind of, like, General Patton when she has to. And like General Patton, she's willing to make sacrifices. So the next thing I know, she was saying, so Seth, your job is to blah, 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 blah. And then I hear you say, the ice cream is here. And she shows me this picture of this kind of scruffy looking man who happens to have a really cute daughter. Now, I mentioned I had some, some scraggly hair myself. That was really key to avoid all the cute campers in the campground. I could just kind of put it in front of my eyes. It was like a toddler hiding from someone, you know, like they can't see me, I'm safe. <laughs> Anyways, next thing I know, I have this piece of paper in my pocket, and I'm kind of bouncing on the back of a little truck called the Yucky Trucky, driven by the grounds crew. They um, pick up garbage a couple times a day, and um, I was totally lost in my reverie of what just transpired. I didn't notice the, the oozy garbage ooze coming to hit me <laughs> until it hit me that this was a stupid plan. 
who would send a 13-year-old down to the store to go con the con man? <laughs> that was a really bad plan. The idea was that I was going to trick this guy and lie to him about our ice cream situation. And he could have been like, you know, he want to push pop. And then I would freeze and be like, oh, it's a setup. Grab him as a hostage. These are the scenarios that were playing in my head. The other scenarios were, what kind of mother would do this? I mean, I have a brother. He's older than me. Is this because I don't wear a skirt right now? Is this because she trusts me to handle this job? I wasn't so sure. So we finished down, going down the really dusty road. And I get dropped off in front of the store. And luckily, even though it was the 4th of July weekend, it was really kind of quiet. Um, it was really overcast. And I remember going into the, into the store and uh, relieving the person. Of course, we didn't talk about this ice cream business. And um, I just started to nervously eat candy because I was so nervous. The first thing I did was check out the push pop situation because that was going to be a major part of this, this whole sting. <laughs> and then the time kind of... It crept by and it crept by. And there I was stuck in my thoughts about my mother. What type of mother would send her just out of sixth grade son to go into harm's way and be a key part of this plan? And I was consoled by eating Twizzlers and Snickers. <laughs> and then I kind of remembered that this wasn't the first time she sent me to do something weird. <laughs> in fact, years later, she had once sent me down in the campground to tell a couple that they were having sex way too loud. <laughs> Come to find out they were both entirely deaf. <laughs> and I was only 16 at the time with very limited knowledge, but I did my best to draw a picture that I can't show you because that would be bad radio. <laughs> But this was just one out of many times I was sent into the carnival to deal with something. So as the time ticked away, the thunder clouds kind of rolled in and things got quiet, way too quiet. And I heard yelling by the pool area, which was not that uncommon. I mean, we had just been dealing with something we like to call the poop bandit. He could have struck the pool again. But then, I, then I, I, I heard commotion, I heard sirens, and I saw someone running. And I looked and I said, that's the guy. That's the guy with the cute daughter running away. Behind him, I see shirtless and about two six packs into his day off as security guard, <laughs> the man that I will call Napoleon McSurley <laughs> to protect his identity. He was running full speed after him. Meanwhile, there's more yelling. There's all sorts of uh, crazy stuff going on. I lock the door to the store. Then I'm like, wait a second. I'm supposed to say the ice cream's here, but the ice cream's already here. I unlock it. I eat more candy. <laughs> and then finally, I hear my general of a mother on the CB. It's all clear. And I sigh in relief. And now I'd like to give a little epilogue of what happened. As you heard, yes the police did accidentally apprehend the wrong man <laughs> from the shower, but I think he was French-Canadian and did not speak fluent English, and so we needed an interpreter. And that was kind of embarrassing for Exeter's finest. 
The other thing that my mother left out was that my hippie brother in a skirt accidentally backed into a car in front of the cops in the front of the office. And he told my mother a few years later, it's because he was, he thought he was, he was busted for you know, receiving some marijuana in the mail. Well, a few years after that, he said, no, it was actually mushrooms. It was actually mushrooms. It wasn't marijuana. But he had freaked out, thought he, thought he was doomed, backed into a car, had offered a cop hot coffee on a 96-degree day, and got away scot-free wearing a skirt, which is amazing. <laughs> and the hero of her story, besides me, <laughs> Napoleon McSurley, there's a lot of stories about him. He was the smallest yet the loudest of our security guards, and perhaps the bravest as well. He, he lived on to, to have, uh, I'd say, some stories that belong in another session. But that is uh, one of the many times I was sent by my loving mother into the campground to deal with things way beyond my age and pay grade. <laughs> Another childhood survivor. <laughs> Thanks, Seth, for setting us straight. <laughs> Annette Slattery, originally from Germany, married a Midwesterner 18 years ago, and finally, two years ago, found her way to Portsmouth, where she now lives. Annette says that she's always been a dedicated storyteller, telling tales to whoever was willing to listen, but... This is the first time she's told in a more formal setting. That would be us, a formal setting. <laughs> Tonight's story about two non-adventurous people who pack their tents and sleeping bags to hit the road and look for adventure in the eye is titled Camping 101. Come on up, Annette. Nope. Are we into camping? That was the big question in the summer of 2000. My husband and I had five weeks off between jobs and apartments, and we didn't feel rich enough to spend a lot of money on hotels. We both had camped as children with our families, but didn't remember much about it. This would be our first camping trip as adults. Our plan was to drive from St. Louis to the West Coast and back, staying with friends in the cities and camp in between. Our brother-in-law had a new tent and camping equipment that hadn't been used despite his good intentions. Good for us. He was glad to help us out and off we went. On the first day of driving, we wanted to cover as many miles as possible and made it as far as Iowa. It was already getting dark when we started to look for a campground. In the road atlas, I saw a state park with some sort of camping symbol at a nearby river. So I decided that we would spend our first night there. It turned out to be a very basic campsite with no on-site staff. The fee schedule was displayed at the entrance. You were supposed to write your name and license plate number on an envelope, calculate your bill, and then put the envelope with the payment in a theft-proof box. I had never seen such an honor system at a campground and learned since then that those boxes are called Iron Rangers. Luckily, we were able to rustle up enough cash on the spot so we didn't have to worry about angry officials waking us up to collect fees. Looking for a place to pitch our tent for the first time on the trip, it dawned on us that it was not a good idea to arrive so late that it became difficult to actually make out our options in the dark. 
was the only lit building we could see the wash station we tried to figure out. You don't want to be right next to it because it gets noisy and people go by constantly. But trekking for a long way across the site for some water gets old too. Was this a good and even spot for the tent right here? Or would we wake up with stones and thick roots in our backs? The other campers were standing around in groups, drinking and looking over to us. Were they watching us to see if we needed help or to see if we had anything they wanted? My imagination was running wild. <laughs> I pictured how some of them possibly snuck by the Iron Ranger earlier with just an eye roll and a tired smirk. And now, maybe they were looking to continue their rule-breaking ways, just to make their night more entertaining. <laughs> to be fair, they probably thought those same things about us, sneaking in after dark with out-of-state license plates, not looking very outdoorsy, and trying to pitch a tent that we were obviously not familiar with. Maybe there was a reason we had to avoid hotels and campgrounds with staff registration desks. <laughs> to make matters worse, it was a very hot and humid night, so we had to leave the top of the tent for ventilation. Anybody could walk right up and look in through the mesh, watching us sleep, or not sleep, more likely, between the unfamiliar place, the heat and the strange noises of animals straying close to the tent all night, it seemed like I didn't sleep a wink. Next to me, I felt that my husband couldn't get comfortable either. At one point during the night, I asked him if he was scared too, but he said no. He's usually a very good sleeper and loves to sleep in. But at the first ray of light, he admitted that he had been strangely terrified as well. He wanted to leave right now. So we packed up quickly, left the now innocent-looking collection of tents behind, and promised ourselves to up our camping game. Our next stop was Badlands National Park. We arrived well before dark and paid our fee to uniformed staff in a proper booth. We looked for a site while saying hello to our fellow campers, telling them where we were from and where we would be going. A few friendly exchanges followed. After dinner, we went to one of the ranger talks and learned about the Badlands. The Badlands got their name because they were a harsh and hostile environment for indigenous prairie dwellers back in the day. And later, French-Canadian fur trappers called them Badlands to travel through. However, despite the discouraging park name, we found the Badlands very welcoming and slept well that night. Thinking about how we perceived those two situations so differently, I can say a few things with certainty. Don't sneak in after dark, say hello to your fellow travelers, and try to learn a few things about the place you're at. This is how we became happy campers for a few weeks, at least under certain conditions. We had fond memories of this trip, so 14 years later, we asked our brother-in-law if he still had that tent. He said, yes, it's still here, and you seem to be the only ones using it. So off we went to see some of the other national parks. On this trip, two years ago, an encounter in Roosevelt National Park stood out. One afternoon, we went on a three to four hour hiking trip to the prairie grasslands. It was sunny and the grasses and flowers were beautiful. We saw some other hikers here and there, but not too many. On the last stretch of the round trip trail, the trail started to lead us into a herd of bison, which were roaming freely. We were not too concerned in the beginning because we had seen a bison before from a distance when he wandered close to the campsite at night, looking so interestingly odd and peaceful. We decided to give the animals a wide berth and continued on the trail. 
Then the trail led down a rather steep hillside. One bison was standing close to the trail on one side and a few other bison a little further away on the other side of the trail. Some of them were laying down. It was impossible for us to give them a wide berth because at this point the trail was the only way down. We briefly thought about turning around, but it was getting late and we knew the parking lot was just about 15 minutes away. If we could only follow the trail. I had never heard about bison being aggressive. And anyway, would the rangers let hikers walk through here if there was any reason for concern? As mentioned before, I had tremendous trust in the National Park Service. Rangers in professional uniforms were always watching out for us and supplying plenty of warning notices about all sorts of dangers. Never saw anything about bison, though. <laughs> so we approached the gigantic, prehistoric-looking animals with scraped-up confidence. They were standing still, looking at us with interest. When we passed through the group, there were about eight feet between us and the closest bison. The animals stood very still and quiet, and I could feel its enormous presence. It was a moment of awe. My husband, on the other hand, used the moment to lift up his camera and snap a picture. <laughs> to his credit, he didn't attempt any, and now one with you and the bison pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe startled from being photographed, the bison scampered off suddenly. We continued down the hillside and finished up our hike. After dinner that night, we went to another one of the ranger talks. I don't remember the topic that night, but I definitely listened up when she started talking about one of her first forays into the bison herd. She was taking a group of hikers around and stopped to talk to them for a bit when one of the bison suddenly charged the group. She had to yell, run, 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 and they all sprinted up a nearby butte. They were lucky and the bison didn't pursue them any further, but it sure gave them all a hearty shock. My husband and I looked at each other uneasily. <laughs> From Wikipedia, I learned that, quote, bison temperament is often unpredictable. They usually appear peaceful, unconcerned, even lazy, yet they may attack anything, often without warning or apparent reason. <laughs> they can move at speeds up to 35 miles per hour and cover long distances at a lumbering gallop, unquote. Looking back, I have two thoughts on this matter. First, I'm grateful that I didn't have that information a few hours earlier. <laughs> and second, what exactly is the national park policy on bison? Could it really be something like, good luck and bring your running shoes? <laughs> is it possible that my trust in this government organization is unfounded? <laughs> so after all this, what is the answer to the big question? Are we into camping? Or do we enjoy camping mainly in retrospect, when the moments of feeling stranger danger and looking enigmatic bison in the eye have safely passed. Going on camping adventures is out of my comfort zone, and I certainly don't enjoy every minute of it. But I think we are going to borrow that tent again soon, because what would life be without adventures? <laughs> She looked a bison in the eye and lived to tell about it. Yes, adventure. Next up, we've got John Dover. He lived out his misspent youth in Long Island, his adolescence in Summit, New Jersey, a commuting distance from New York, went to college at Colgate University, and earned his master's degree from the U University of Utah. 
Then John worked for 38 years as a high school guidance counselor in New Hampshire. Now happily retired, right, John? Yep. Yeah, happy enough. <laughs> he lives with his wife and son in Northampton. Back in 1977, despite having played not despite not having played tennis for over a year, he agreed to head up the tennis program at a boys camp in Maine. Tennis turned out to be a non-issue, but other factors made that summer a memorable one. Let's listen to what happened in John's story, Summer Camp Surprises. Thanks, Pat. Yeah, uh, I make decisions usually by what I want to do. Rather, you know, logic and rationality doesn't always enter into it. So um, the fact that I hadn't picked up a tennis racket in over a year and the fact that I, I was uh, being treated for this illness, ulcerative colitis, the fact that um, we had a nine-month-old son who was very, very active, there, there are issues that made it possibly a little bit problematic, this decision to work at the, at the camp. But um, we got there, um, and um, if you've ever been to a camp, you'll know that it's an experience that it kind of enfolds you, and you're with all these kids, most of whom want to be there. And even the ones that don't want to be there, they get caught up in the fun and um, the uh, relationships that they form with the other campers. And so it becomes this um, place where everybody's kind of experiencing this, and it's wonderful. And um, so I was, it was working out. Um, the camp director came to me one morning and said, I need a, um, a driver to bring a busload of kids down to another camp. We're gonna compete against them. So um, could you bring like the, the tennis kids and the baseball kids and the soccer kids down with you? And I didn't think this was a good idea because the biggest thing I had ever driven before was my father's Oldsmobile Delta 88, which felt like driving the Queen Mary. And this was going to be a school bus. And so I said to the camp director, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> and I, he said, great, uh, the keys are in the ignition. Uh, we'll get the kids to load up in the front of the camp and just back it out and bring it up there. So I get to the bus, and um, there's the keys in the ignition, so it's, it starts right up, and I'm looking. There's all these, like, side-view mirrors that I know I'm supposed to use, but I don't know how to use them, so I just decided I won't. And I look through the rear-view mirror, and it's fairly clear, so I start up backing out until I hear this loud metallic crunching sound. And I stopped the bus and get out and I had backed into uh, the station wagon. So I went back to the camp director and I said, Miles, um, I just backed into someone's station wagon. He says, oh, that's my car. And I said, I was really sorry, but I, I kind of felt, okay, well, the good news is that I'm not gonna have to drive this bus. But that's not what he said, he said, you need to be more careful so that you don't have any more accidents when you go and take the kids down to the other camp. So I was really careful, and I got the kids down there and back. Um, no one was injured, um, and I didn't hit any more cars or anything. 
and the camp um, kept on going. And like I said, it was it was fun. It was enjoyable. Um, except that my wife was having issues with my nine-month-old son, who was, as I said, was very active. We were living in the lodge, so we didn't have camper responsibilities directly. Um, but um, the lodge was a place where the counselors could come in to relax when they were off duty. And they would smoke cigarettes there um, because at the, this was a long time ago, and their public... Um, areas you could smoke um, even in schools teachers could smoke in the teachers room so there were cigarette butts all over the floor and um, my son Russell uh, liked nothing better than to pop a cigarette butt first thing in the morning um, into his mouth and um, and it was like a game that my wife would play to try and get that butt out of his hands before he could get into his mouth and he also was a champion dirt eater. And, and I don't know if other nine months old do this, but he was always, whatever he could find, he would put in his mouth. So he would, we'd, she'd have him down at um, the beach um, on this lake, and um, he would be climbing the lifeguard chair. Um, and when he'd get down, he'd try and grab a handful of dirt and put it in his mouth. And my wife was like trying to bat his hand away. And the kids would love this because they would, you know, this little kid that was littler than they were, um, but he was so active. They just thought it was great. Um, I started to feel kind of sick um, over the course of the summer. Stomach aches and diarrhea and um, wasn't feeling well at all. And I even went to... Um, the main medical center, and they gave me some pills for, they thought maybe it was Giardia, um, didn't help, and I got sicker and sicker and um, started to run a fever. Um, and one morning, my son, um, he was, like I said, he was a great climber, he was downstairs in the lodge, and he decided to climb a 10-speed bike. And he gets about halfway up and he pulls the bike down on himself and um, puts a big gash in his forehead. And so my wife looks at him and says, I'm going to take him and get uh, stitches in his forehead. And I said, fine, I'm going up to the infirmary because I felt terrible. And so I go up to the infirmary and there was a woman who seemed ancient to me. Um, she's probably younger than I am now, but she seemed really, really old. And she says, you look awful. I said, I feel terrible. She said, um, uh, why don't you lie down and just relax for a while? And I said, great. So I do that. And a few minutes later, she comes in and says, you have guests. And I'm like, who could possibly be visiting me? Like, I couldn't think of anybody. And then in following her come Marin and Jerry. Marin and Jerry were a couple that we had become friends with in Salt Lake City, Utah. We went to their wedding. Uh, we socialized with them. They were good friends of ours. And um, they gave us a party when we left. I, I had written them a letter about six months ago. And I will just preface this by saying that their decisions um, or things that I have done that I regret doing, but most of my regrets come from things that I didn't do and I wish I had. 
um, like going to Woodstock. I could have done that so easily, and I didn't. Um, but this was one of those times when I regretted something that I had done. I had written this letter to them in which I was trying to be cute and funny. And at the end of the letter, I said, you'll probably be divorced in a couple of years anyway. And if you're thinking to yourself, boy, what a stupid thing to say, yes. But at the time, I thought, oh, this is like funny. This is cute. And um, Marion and Jerry, Jerry remembered that. And so there, I'm there um, with them in the infirmary, and they bring it up. And I said, well, let's go down to the lodge. So as sick as I am, um, bring them down to the lodge. And I get into bed, because and there's no furniture in the room, so they're standing around the bed. And I, what can I say? But I'm sorry. I wish I hadn't said that to you guys. Um, I, it was stupid, you know. And just about this time, my wife comes in with my nine-month-old. He's got uh, the stitches in his forehead from where the, he's pulled the bike over on himself. And I think Marin and Jerry were realizing, oh, these people are really not in good shape right now, so maybe it's time <laughs> to let things go and move on, which is what they did. <clears throat> And my health continued to deteriorate. Um, I continued to do my tennis teaching thing, but I was spending a lot of time in bed and um, starting to lose weight. I did get through the end of the camp experience. Um, when I got back to the school, people looked at me and said, what happened to you? And I, I said, well, I, I spent the summer at a camp, um, but I did find out from my doctor that, in fact, it was the ulcerative colitis that was causing me to be really, really sick. And, but in spite of that, I have no regrets at all about this camp because the, the enthusiasm and the love between these kids, it was just wonderful. I mean, there's times when people are sad and angry and everything, but you get this really tightness, this, this really good feelings. So, but the thing that I, I do regret a lot was the letter to Marin and Jerry. As it turned out, ironically, they did get divorced. <laughs> and I kind of wonder to myself sometimes, I wonder what kind of role, if any, I played in that. Probably nothing, but it's like so many things in life, you, you never really know the answer. Thanks a lot. Way to go, John. They'd still be happily married today if it wasn't for those just inappropriately timed words. <laughs> All right. Kathy Wolf has been a resident of the Seacoast since 1976. She's a writer slash storyteller and rabble rouser who lives in Kittery Foreside with two cats, Tux and Edo. Her current short-term dream is to get a camper van and hit the road for a few months. Still? No, that, oh, that's current a while ago. Came up, okay, whatever. <laughs> Forget that dream. She's on to another one. In describing tonight's story, Kathy asked the question, ever notice that bad things, especially loss, often happen in threes, one after another after another? Well, let's hear more about that question in her story, Beyond My Control. <laughs> It 
It was 2 a.m. I know it was 2 because I looked at the clock when the sirens woke me up. I lay there thinking, whew, it sounds close, and I was going to just wait until the sirens would go by the way they do, you know, and fade out. And I thought, I wonder whose house is on fire. I wonder what it's like to wake up in a room of smoke. I wonder if that happened to me, what I'd take with me. And then the sirens just stopped at their loudest. They didn't fade. So I got out of bed, I looked out the window, and up the street I could see all these lights, red, yellow, blue, going around. Uh, And I thought, something's happening. So I punched my husband and said, something's happening, and he rolled over and kept sleeping. I pulled on my shorts and my um, uh, T-shirt and sandals. It was a summer night, and went up the street. I got up there, and there's an old house that had been renovated into three or four apartments right on the corner. It was just a couple of houses up from mine, actually. And there's smoke coming out the windows of it. Um, And there was a policeman standing there, so I went up, and I said, Officer, everybody get out. He doesn't look me in the eye, looks over my shoulder, and he says, Yep, everybody's fine. Step back, lady. So I stepped back to the curb where some of my neighbors were, and I was hanging out there, and that's when I found out that uh, he'd lied. A, um, according to these people. Uh, a woman and her two babies had been in the first floor apartment and had died. So, um, I headed back home after a while, and I uh, went back to sleep, finally. And 6 a.m., I woke. Somebody's yelling in the street, yelling, a man's voice. And I hadn't even bothered to get undressed when I went back at night, so I just ran out in the street again. And up at the door, is, it, it's, there's a policeman standing there, and there's a man yelling at him saying, I live here. I want to get in. I want to get in now. I need to get in. I live here. Those are, it's where I live. And the officer had it grabbed, said, no, 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 and then put him in a bear hug, and he was kicking his legs in the air, yelling, let go of me. Let me in. Let me in. And I'm standing across the street, almost the exact place I had been the night before, saying, let him go, let him in, just let him go. And, of course, it made no difference. It was way out of my control. So what I heard, and I don't think it was that night, but maybe the next day, and I'm not sure I read it in the paper, is that that whole family, the man, the woman, and the two kids, had gone camping that weekend, uh, and... The woman had come home early with her babies, possibly because if they'd had an argument, and had fallen asleep with a cigarette that had set something on fire and set the apartment on fire. And then, and I don't know how anyone would really know this, but I know it was what I heard, is she'd she'd woken up to the smoke, gone after her babies and tried to pick up a few other things. And the smoke got them all and they died. Um, I didn't know these people. People moved in and out of those apartments all the time. I remember a couple of weeks earlier I'd been walking by and the woman was in the parking lot of the uh, apartment building with the two toddlers and she was yelling at the oldest child. He was not doing something she wanted or he was doing something she didn't want. And uh, I remember thinking I should go over and say, hey, can I help? I know how hard it is to have kids, especially when they're that age, and I only had one, you got two, it must be really hard, but I didn't do that. I knew she'd probably say, or expected she'd say, mind your own business. I didn't know these people, but somehow that made it harder to hold their death. The next night was just as hot as that first night. 
and neither my husband nor I could get to sleep. And he finally suggested, hey, let's take a walk. Well, this kind of surprised me because we really weren't doing a whole lot together around that time. <clears throat> Excuse me. I thought, this is great. So we went out for this walk. I tried not to look at the building as we went by it. We kept walking, and the air was, it was just a light little breeze, you know, those deep August nights. And we'd walked for a while, and he said, you know, I really think we'd be better off apart. Well, this hurt. It hurt not only because I was already an emotional mess, but because I didn't agree with him. And also... It was the second time we had tried being married to each other, and I thought, well, this time I'm sure it'll work. So I said, well, can't we just give counseling a try? Maybe just a try? And he said, okay, okay, we will. But I knew, I knew deep in my heart he had his mind made up and um, that it was beyond my control, really. Two days after that, I had planned something I ter- turns out I really, really needed, going off to a camp. See, camp works its way in here somewhere. <laughs> going off to a camp with uh, some women friends, half a dozen women friends. This camp um, is very special. It was, uh, it was o- it's owned by my friend Alice, and her, she and her late husband had bought it. They'd always made everyone welcome there. It's three or four hours north of here, and it's north of Skowhegan, north uh, east of Skowhegan. You only way you can get to the camp is either row in a boat, or if you have a motor, motor in the boat, or walk down, walk a mile or more in the woods to get there. There's no electricity. There's no indoor plumbing. There's half a dozen other camps, and hardly ever is anyone in them <clears throat> when when we're there. The water is clear, and all there are are hummingbirds and loons and stars at night, and it's a wonderful place to be. It's my refuge. It's my heaven. It's, it's a place where you can get grounded again and again and again. It's a place where you can breathe. So we had these great days up there. We were kayaking. We were drinking. We were eating. We were reading, sleeping on the dock. I mean, just lovely, laughing a lot. The second night, so we're two days there, the second night, Alice made a big spaghetti and meatball um, uh, dinner. And Alice cooked all the food. She always cooks all the food. In fact, I'm going up next week to this car- couple of weeks, and she'll make all the meals. Her homemade meatballs and a lot of pasta and wine. And after dinner, we're cleaning up, and I saw this extra pasta, and I said, Hey, Alice, you want to save this? She said, No, toss it. So I wadded it up, and I tossed it. Nancy caught it, and she threw it to Robin, and we were laughing and throwing around this sticky, gooey, stringy wad of pasta. It seemed like fun at the time, but then one pitch, and I'm not sure it was mine, but it might have been, hit a candle that was on a windowsill, lit, and it fell over and hit the arm of a couch on which there was, I swear, a synthetic windbreaker, and Alice swears, an Afghan, so I'm going to give credit to us both and say they both were piled up there. It went up in flames, like just whoosh, like that. And I'm watching that, and I feel this rage come up in me from so deep. It just comes up, and all I can think is not one more thing is going to be destroyed and out of my control. And I lunge at the couch, and with my bare hands, yank the burning material onto the floor and stomp on it. 
I turn around and there's five, my five friends just staring at me. Alice has a half a pan of dishwater that she does go and throws on her couch. But the fire was out. I moved with such speed and not thinking and on an impulse that I think had more to do with saving me than saving the camp uh, that I didn't burn my hands too badly. It all went very fast. And it left me with a feeling of lightness, of satisfaction, of somehow, just once, making a little bit of a difference. Thank you so much to all of tonight's storytellers for their wonderful stories, and also to our studio audience for coming and participating as well. Thanks to everyone. <laughs>